0: They have planned that are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome, useless eaters, to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. What is up, oddities? It's so cool to be with you once again. This is The Odd Man, and you are listening to The Oddcast, of course. So thank you for taking the time to hang out with me. Now this one is going to be about the Fabian Society, and it's the Fabian Society Part 2. If some of you regulars listened to the first episode, I may cover just a couple things that I went over in that one. But this is going to be a more comprehensive dive on the Fabians, and I do think that they have been way more instrumental in political operations and policies than we believe than we can even fathom their techniques i think are very unique with their fabian permeation and their tactics are very sneaky and i think that there may even be fabian socialists in the conservative party here in the states and maybe some of the talking heads have been Fabian socialists or had a Fabian mentality. So we're going to get into that as we go over this comprehensive history. And I'll start again at the first part, and that is in 1884. The Fabians were created in 1884 officially from an existing group called the Fellowship of the New Life, started by a Scottish-born American professor named Tommy Davidson, who was a devout socialist. Davidson is linked to some of the founders of the U.S. education system. In 1872, Hall took a teaching position at Antioch College, Yellow Springs, Ohio, a western outpost of Unitarianism, where Horace Mann, a founding father of the U.S. education system, spent the last 14 years of his life. From Antioch, writes Hall, I several times made excursions to St. Louis to spend Saturday evenings with the Hegelian William T. Harris, who had won national fame by his educational reconstruction of the St. Louis schools, which was widely copied. A member of the St. Louis group was Thomas Davidson, who would, in 1883, found the Fabian Society in London. The Fabians would socialize Britain through their slow method of permeation. That was a quote by Samuel L. Blumenfeld from the book NEA, Trojan Horse in American Education. Also, John Taylor Gatto, the late John Taylor Gatto, wrote, of course, a lot about the education system, and he said this about the Fabians. It would not be too far out of line to call the 20th century the Fabian century, One thing is certain, the direction of modern schooling for the bottom 90% of our society has followed a largely Fabian design, and the puzzling security and prestige enjoyed at the moment by those who speak of globalism and multiculturalism are a direct result of heed paid earlier to Fabian prophecies that a welfare state, followed by an intense focus on internationalism, would be the mechanism elevating corporate society over political society, and a necessary precursor to utopia. Fabian theory is the das Kapital of financial capitalism. Quite simply, they wanted to change the world through a species of propaganda termed education, which would lead to political action. They were clear that education would be one of their main avenues to convince the world their ways were right. Look at a quote by one of their heroes, who was also the hero of Rhodes and Milner of the Rhodes Society of the Elect and the Pilgrims Society, Professor John Ruskin. John was one of the Fabians heroes, as well as the Rhodes-era roundtable heroes, and he taught at Oxford. And, of course, many of the Rhodes Roundtable Society of the Elect, Pilgrim Society guys, were taught by John Ruskin, or were linked with John Ruskin because of Oxford. But, so were the Fabians. Fabian society leaders had a real tie to Oxford as well. In 1867, John Ruskin wrote, The first duty of the state is to see that every child born therein shall be well housed, clothed, fed, and educated. But in order to do this, the government must have an authority over the people of which we now do not so much as dream. Now, I've read that quote quite a few times on this show, but I think it's very important. And to see that this guy was a hero of both the Rhodes era Round Table and the Fabian Society, which on paper, these two should have been opposite each other. One socialist and one capitalist, but that is not the case, and we'll learn that a little bit later. One of the main members of the Fabian Society, and one of the most famous, was H.G. Wells. Now, he wasn't the original. He came a few years later. But you know that he wrote the book New Worlds for Old, also The Open Conspiracy, and the book New World Order. And they were... Operation Manuals on How to Create a World Socialist State. And another little interesting thing about H.G. Wells, well, when Churchill ran for the liberal government, the liberal party, H.G. Wells was a big backer of Churchill, and so were the Fabians. So Churchill was a bit like a Mitt Romney, playing both sides of the field, and we've seen that quite a bit in the modern era. Just tell the people what they want to hear, and they'll be convinced that you've changed your mind and your political outlook. One of the early members described the Fabian Society as Christian without Christianity, whatever that means. An official modern description, and this comes off the Fabian Society website, the modern website, The Fabian Society is an independent left-leaning think tank and a democratic membership society with over 7,000 members. We influence political and public thinking and provide a space for broad and open-minded debate. Doesn't that sound great? Now, the Fabians, the original Fabians, they were heavily influenced by, of course, Karl Marx, Hegel, Kant, and, as I mentioned, John Ruskin. They were essentially rebelling, I believe, against the excesses of their Victorian forefathers. And they had some good reasons for that, because obviously the Victorian era was an era of excess and decadence. But like many things, especially when you have the group mentality, the hive mind, they go too far. And that's what the Fabians did. And it's just like the socialists of today. Of course, as we went over in the first episode, they believed in gradualism, and that's what made them different from the communists and the Marxists. They didn't want to burn everything down and just destroy and then rebuild. They wanted to slowly, slowly permeate their way into the existing power structures in both the public and private sectors, and I personally believe that's exactly what they've done. Infiltration, as we mentioned earlier, into the education system was a top priority that they wrote about, as well as ending property rights and creating a minimum wage. They were also very much in favor of nationalization of just about everything. According to George Bernard Shaw, one of the main Fabians, their greatest strength was that they weren't very well known. He says also, Our propaganda is one of permeating. We urged our members to join the liberal and radical associations in their district, or, if they preferred it, the conservative associations. We permeated the party organizations and pulled all the strings we could lay our hands on with the utmost adroitness and energy, and we succeeded so well that in 1988, We gained the solid advantage of a progressive majority full of ideas that would never have come into their heads had not the Fabians put them there. And that was only four years into the Fabian Society that they were able to accomplish that. And that's pretty amazing. Now Sidney Webb, one of the other founders, just as important as Shaw, he had this to say. Let me insist on what our opponents habitually ignore, and indeed what they seem intellectually incapable of understanding, namely the inevitable gradualness of our scheme of change. And he said that in front of the Labor Party in 1923. Sidney, the great socialist, went on to be a baron of Passfield. Poor little socialists. Another interesting thing that I read, was early on, George Bernard Shaw confided to the German socialist Edward Bernstein that he wanted the Fabians to be the Jesuits of socialism. And so there you have another link with the Rhodes era round Table. What did Cecil Rhodes say in his last will and testament? That he wanted to fashion his secret societies after the Jesuits. So I think that is another important thing to just kind of put in there. The motto of the Fabian Society, published on page one of Fabian tract number one. And yeah, they got right on making tracts and pamphlets as soon as they got together. That was part of the thing that I think made them different as well. There was a real intellectual side to them. But anyway... Fabian, tract number one, stressed the value of delayed action. is stated, For the right moment you must wait, as Fabius did, most patiently when warring against Hannibal, though many censured his delays. But when the time comes, you must strike hard, as Fabius did, or your waiting will be in vain and fruitless. And I mentioned in the first episode, I'll go over it again quickly, on the cover Of many a Fabian publication, it was shortened to read, I wait long, but when I strike, I strike hard. Usually, it accompanied a sketch of an angry tortoise by the Fabian artist Walter Crane, which first appeared on a Fabian Christmas card and has since been reproduced on literally millions of Fabian tracks and pamphlets distributed throughout the English-speaking world. So the tortoise became the heraldic device of the society, emblem of persistence, longevity, slow and guarded progress towards a revolutionary goal. So it's slow and steady wins the race like the tortoise and the hare. And we'll mention the tortoise again here in a few minutes. Here we have a quote from the Fabian Freeway. It says, In Britain, its present-day leaders control the parliament and the ministries in the name of the Labour Party which they created, by the way, in the United States, where its identity has been even more carefully concealed and where its practitioners are usually known as liberals rather than socialists, it has very nearly succeeded in reversing that movement of national independence, which began in 1776, originally advancing with the slow but steady gait of a tortoise on a country road. Fabian socialism has now adapted itself comfortably to a high-speed age and attempts to lead the free world with unprecedented velocity towards a financial, military, and moral breakdown of which world communism is the only logical beneficiary. I did read that on the first episode as well, but I think that's very important for any of you guys that may not listen to that episode. As I said earlier, according to the London School of Economics and other things I've read, the Fabians immediately began to publish pamphlets with their ideas and also do speeches in public as much as possible to get those ideas out. According to encyclopedia.com, it says the Fabians have never had more than 80,000 members still, It has a universal significance in the history of social sciences that has been recognized even by its most outspoken critics. Again, one of its founders, Sidney Webb, once said that the original members did not wish to have a very large number of official Fabians in their midst. Instead, they preferred that people think like Fabians and join other groups to change their mindset. Early members of the Fabians included Edward R. Pease, Frank Podmore, of course, George Bernard Shaw, famous theosophist leader Annie Bizant, who took over after Blavatsky died, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, and Havelock Ellis. Havelock Ellis was a self-proclaimed sexologist. He was the Kinsey of his day and was later accused of rampant pedophilia. Yes, and the Fabians have tried to kind of wipe that history out of him being a part of it, but it's very well documented that he absolutely was a part of their society. Now, H.G. Wells, as I said, came in a little bit later, and he was very close, oddly enough, to the eugenicist and birth control league founder, Margaret Sanger, who was said to be a theosophist as well. There are many letters between the two, and I think there's enough proof to show that they probably had an on-again, off-again affair. Uh, Sanger gave a speech to the Fabians in 1915 called A Tremendous Awakening. Now, here is an excerpt from one of their letters. This is H.G. Wells to Margaret Sanger in 1937. Last spring, I had neuritis very badly, and I had my doubts whether the fag end of life is worth living. Yes, he said fag. But people like you and I have so many other people getting a sort of courage to live out of us, weak as we may be in reality, that we cannot afford to do anything but live with the utmost apparent stoutness to the end. I can tell you now that I have loved you very deeply ever since I met you first. And I always shall. H.G. Wells to Margaret Sanger. This is from Margaret. From 1920 on, I never went to England without spending part of the time with H.G. That was in her autobiography. She wrote upon the death of H.G. Wells H.G. means London, and London means H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells actually wrote the foreword to Sanger's book the pivot of civilization. Here's one of H.G.'s quotes from 1907 from New Worlds for Old. Now, it doesn't get very much attention like Open Conspiracy and New World Order, but he was already writing about this socialist world state in the early part of the 1900s, and those books came on a few decades later, I believe. He says, Socialism ceased to be an open revolution and became a plot. Functions were to be shifted quietly and unostentatiously from the representative to the official he appointed. A bureaucracy was to slip into power. Now, boy, doesn't that sound like Fabian socialism, right? Permeation. Now, some later famous members, there's been a lot of members, but the most famous were probably, of course, John Maynard Keynes, the economist, probably the most famous economist in the world besides Adam Smith. Also, R.H. Tawney, Harold Lasky, and I believe Lasky may have worked also with the Rosera Roundtable guys, Lionel Walter Rothschild, John Dewey, the father of American education, Lord Bertrand Russell, who was... Also a professor at the London School of Economics and Social Sciences, which the Fabians started. Julian Huxley of UNESCO and brother of Aldous Huxley of Brave New World. And many people say Aldous was also a Fabian. And here's another interesting one. Tony Blair, the British Prime Minister who was a PM when the Iraq war and the war on terror started. And you can see him piled up with George W. Bush and also with Bill Clinton. And you would think that capitalists and Fabian socialists don't mix, but they sure do. And Tony Blair had, he wasn't just a regular Fabian, he wrote books on Fabian socialism, and he wrote tracks for the Fabians. Now, this one kind of uh, surprised me. Robin Cook, who was in Parliament, and actually resigned in Parliament very vocally, saying that he did not approve of Britain's part in the war on terror. He stated publicly that there is no al-Qaeda. They made it up in order to go to war. And he had a heart attack not long after that, so... You know, it makes you wonder, right? Other modern Fabian notables Gordon Brown, Graham Wallace, Hubert Bland, Edith Nesbitt, Sidney Oliver, Oliver Lodge, Leonard Wolf, Virginia Wolf, Ramsay McDonald, and Emmeline Panghurst. Max Lerner was a pioneer of the communist movement. You may recognize that name. Later, he moved into Fabian Socialism. His projection through newspaper columns and on radio and television as an independent thinker was completely contradicted by the fact that he'd been either a communist or a Fabian throughout his entire adult life. And lastly, talking about the famous Fabians, There's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that Eric Blair, a.k.a. George Orwell, was a Fabian for some time and may actually have written 1984 as the 100th year anniversary of the founding of the Fabian Society because they started in 1884. Some say 1984 was what he thought would result in a Fabian system. It is documented that he gave several speeches before the Fabian Society, but must have had some sort of falling out with them, as H.G. Wells did. Wells actually went against them and actually said that they were the new Machiavellians. There's actually a long story about their kind of falling out between the Fabians, the original Fabians, and H.G. Wells in a book I read called Educate, Agitate, and Organize. And he basically wanted them to kind of... um, change some things and kind of modernize a bit because he came on about, I guess, around seven or eight years, maybe 10 years later after it was started. The original guys just didn't want to really go along with that. And Wells had a big ego as well. And so they kept clashing and Wells kept trying to get to be the head of the Fabians, but it never happened because they had to do it on a vote and he never got voted in. And there was a lot of hostility there, and he eventually left the society over it. So, a little bit of inner society turmoil there. Now, another fellow who was one of the Fabian's heroes was an Italian communist by the name of Antonio Gramsci. And he's got a quote that says, From the moment when a subordinate class becomes really independent and dominant, calling into being a new type of state, the need arises concretely of building a new intellectual and moral order, i.e. a new type of society, and hence the need to elaborate the most universal concepts, the most refined and decisive ideological weapons. Joseph Alois Schumpeter in Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy said this about the Fabian. Socialist endeavor of the Fabian type would not have amounted to anything at any other time, but it did amount to much during the three decades preceding 1914, because things and souls were ready for that kind of message, and neither for a less nor for a more radical one. Formulation and organization of existing opinion were all that was needed in order to turn possibilities into articulate policy, And in this organizing formulation, the Fabians provided in a most workmanlike manner. They were reformers. The spirit of the times made socialists of them. They were genuine socialists because they aimed at helping in a fundamental reconstruction of society, which in the end was to make economic care a public affair. Of course, that sounds great, but then you start looking at some of the other quotes and the things that the Fabians did, and some of their links, and you start to see that maybe that wasn't quite the case after all. Now I want to talk briefly about Fabianism in America. The man that is credited with founding Fabianism here is William Dwight Porter Bliss from Boston. As a testament to how successful Fabianism was and still is in the United States, It was Stuart Chase, a Fabian, who coined the term the New Deal in one of his books. The League for Industrial Democracy in the United States was previously called the Intercollegiate Socialist Society, and it is considered to be the Fabian Society in the U.S. In the United States, the League for Industrial Democracy, following the same program organized by the Student League for Industrial Democracy, SLJD, this organization had left its mark in almost every major college and university in the United States. Since 1905, thousands of prominent persons in government, education, science, and religion reflect the socialistic teachings of the Student League for Industrial Democracy. The Rand School for Social Science and its successor, the Tammament Institute, and the library have trained a minimum of 5,000 people per year since its founding in 1906. The bulk of these have entered into sensitive and key positions in government, the information, media, television, newspapers, and radio, in the teaching professions in colleges and high schools throughout America. Well over a quarter of a million radicals have been spawned by this single social science school alone. As have been mentioned before, this interlocking Fabian socialist network has furnished the substance and the sinews for the so-called communist front movements numbering millions of followers. The subversive menace in America can be estimated being at least 8,700 Fabian socialists with the remaining 20% consisting of assorted radical groups. In the United States, the progress of the Fabian pilgrims, though more difficult to trace, has been impressive. On the whole, United States Fabians in public office have been more cautious than their British models about admitting that socialism is their goal. The gradualist and freewheeling character of the movement, plus the generally unsuspicious nature of the American people where gift horses are concerned, has allowed our native Fabian socialists to pursue their goals step by step without disclosing their direction. Their once slow and cautious pace has been gradually accelerated to a breakneck speed. Americans sometimes wonder why so many members of the leftist elite occupy posts of great influence in Washington today. Others ask why United States spokesmen at home and abroad seem so often to be following policies counter to our traditional interests as a nation, and why in Cold War operations, we so frequently lose by default to our declared mortal enemy. International communism. Popular confusion on the subject has given rise to a dangerous myth, namely that a basic and irreconcilable enemy exists between socialists and communists. This is by no means true. Though superficially different and sometimes at odds about methods or timing, both are admittedly followers of the doctrines of Karl Marx or social democracy, and they go together like a horse and carriage. In every country not yet under communist control, the socialists remain communism's most potent and necessary allies. In fact, if they did not exist, the communists would have to invent them. That was from the book Fabian Freeway, by the way. Now we're going to take a closer look at the London School for Economics and Social Sciences, but before we do that, I'm going to hit up one more quick quote I thought was important by John T. Flynn from the book The Road Ahead in 1949. He said, The line between fascism and Fabian socialism is very thin. Fabian socialism is the dream. Fascism is Fabian socialism plus the inevitable dictator. And I think that makes so much sense, because now we're seeing these public-private partnerships coming into being under the Great Reset. You know, the powers that be are really kind of putting it out there in the open, and not really a lot of people are talking about it. We also have this inclusive capitalism that the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and the royal family from Britain are pushing, so I think that is a form of fascism or Fabian socialism. Now let's talk about the London School of Economics and Social Sciences that the Fabians created. As I just said, they created the LSE, and their motto was Educate, Agitate, and Organize. George Bernard Shaw famously described the mission of the Fabian Society as to do just that, and that was on the LSE website. Now, who do we think about when we hear the word agitate or organize? Well, Saul Alinsky, of course, from the Frankfurt School which is related to the Fabian Socialist School, and there's a lot of things that the Frankfurt School and the Fabians had in common. And if I didn't mention it earlier, I believe I did, but Sidney Webb, the Webbs, were partially to blame for helping the Frankfurt School guys get into Columbia University. The Fabian Socialists had founded the London School of Economics in 1895 to train socialists for government bureaucracy, and gradually to put into place their plan to manage society via rules and regulations. It was described as a slowly executed plot by Fabian socialist H.G. Wells in New Worlds for Old, and we read that earlier. In Fabian Beatrice Webb's autobiography, Our Partnership, in 1948, she indicated that she and her husband Sidney received help from the Rothschilds to finance the London School of Economics. Then, in 1920, Sir Ernest Cassell, associated with Kuhn and Loeb, donated 472,000 pounds to the school when it was in serious financial trouble. Now, Kuhn and Loeb, that was who Jacob Schiff worked for, and he was the one who funded Trotsky, going back to Russia to start the Bolshevik Revolution. It goes on to say, and Professor J. H. Morgan, in the Quarterly Review, in January 1929, wrote, When I asked Lord Haldane why he persuaded his friend, Sir Ernest Cassell, to settle by his will large sums of money to the London School of Economics, he replied, Our object is to make this institution a place to raise and train the bureaucracy of the future socialist state. Now, Lord Haldane was also a member of the Pilgrim Society, just so you know. And that was from Dennis El Cuddy's book, The Road to Socialism. I can't get through one of these podcasts without at least one Cuddy quote. David Rockefeller went to the London School of Economics and Social Sciences, and he gave his dissertation called Destitution Through Fabian Eyes on Fabian Socialism, of course, in 1936. And ever since, the Rockefeller family has donated millions to the LSE. But it wasn't just David Rockefeller. He wasn't the only big name. We have George Soros, who went to the LSE. Elliot Abrams of the CFR, who was the one that Trump picked to try and head up the Venezuelan coup, but it didn't work out. And he was also in the Project for a New American Century with the Kagan's and Rumsfeld, and Cheney, and Rice, and all of them. Also, Rolling Stones singer Mick Jagger, Zechariah Sitchin, the big Gnostic guru author, Mr. Uh, Ananaki himself, JFK, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Pierre Trudeau, father of the current Canadian PM, Monica Lewinsky, and Janet Napolitano, that's just a few more people who have graduated from the LSE. Now, Georgetown professor Carol Quigley, the author of Tragedy and Hope, said in his book Anglo-American Establishment that the London School of Economics was another Rose Milner controlled offshoot, and he mentioned a fellow by the name of G.N. Clark, who was editor of the London School of Economics journal called Agenda. And he also worked with Chatham House and worked closely with the Milner Group. So that's another connection to the capitalist Fabian Socialist groups here. Now in addition to the London School of Economics and Social Sciences, I mentioned earlier the Fabians also created Britain's Labour Party. But not only that, they created the Labour Party in Australia. They had something called the Fabian Summer Schools. There's also the Young Fabians, the Fabian Women's Network, the Scottish Fabians, the Welsh Fabians, the New Zealand Fabians, and various local Fabian groups. And that's from their website. Just a few sponsors of the British Fabians, Barclays, Oxfam the World Wildlife Fund, European Commission, the City of London, Lloyd's Banking, Royal London, and various trusts and trade unions. Now, we talked, I believe, on the first episode about the famous Fabian Window, but if you're not familiar, please look up the Fabian Window, which says, Remold Nearer to the Heart's Desire, as it shows Shaw and Wells, with hammers taking them to the earth and striking the earth. So that tells you they're trying to remold the world. And of course, at the time, they also had the famous wolf in sheep's clothing as another one of their pieces of art that would go on their pamphlets. Now, we get back to the turtle. Around 1922, author Ernest Poole, and several editors of the New Republic and a few other academics and media figures moved to New York to a little community called Turtle Bay. Remember, John D. Rockefeller Jr. donated the land for the United Nations building, which happens to be in Turtle Bay. And of course, the turtle was the mascot that says, For the time is right, you must wait. But when I strike, I strike hard. And there is, to this day, a small gate there in Turtle Bay with a turtle on it. And so it became known at that time as the Fabian community in the United States. Now, the Fabians also created the Rand School for Social Sciences. That was around from 1906 to 1935, the Tamament Library is a research library at New York's university that documents radical and left history with strengths in the histories of communism, socialism, anarchism, and the new left, the civil rights movement, and other utopian experiments. The Robert F. Wagner Archives, which also housed in the Bopp's Library at NYU, documents American labor history. Together, the two units form an important center for scholarly research on labor and the left. The Tamman Institute and Library is the new name for the old Rand School of Social Science, and it has replaced the latter as the adjunct of the LID. It is the American counterpart of the British Fabian Research Bureau. The Fabian organization and its American twin feed organized packages of information to leftists in all walks of life to undermine our system of free enterprise and individual freedom. It houses the archives of many communist, socialist, and workers' union writings. It has received funding, of course, from the Rockefellers, as well as many other capitalists. Now, Stuart Chase was a veteran of... Fabian socialists once counseled a socialist gathering that socialism, under any other name, would smell as sweet. Then the question arises as to what label or labels did these undercover leftists use in order to inject socialist thinking in America. Fabian socialists have stolen the magic symbolism of science and have grafted it upon their system of thought. Since almost everybody in the civilized world looks upon science as progressive and beneficial to humanity, It occurred to socialist strategists more than a century ago that old ideas could be presented in a modern garb by calling them a social science. In colleges, the pulpit and lecture hall, the magic term of social science, has been used in a myriad of forms to inculcate a creeping socialism which has stealthily and quite silently insinuated itself into the lifeblood of our civilization. Now let's talk a little bit more about the Fabian Socialist and Capitalist Alliance. And of course, we're starting off with way back when at the start of the Fabians, the Pilgrim Society and the Rhodes guys. You had Lord Haldane, who was in the liberal government there and in both groups. You also had Lord Rosebery, who was an important part of the Pilgrim Society and also worked right hand-in-hand hand with the Fabian Society. He had Lord Lothian, a Pilgrim Society member, who was one of Lord Milner's closest friends and actually traveled to the Soviet Union with George Bernard Shaw. Of course, uh, Lothian and Milner were great friends, and again, Milner was the guy who was credited with being the guy to take over for Cecil Rhodes, and he was part of the Rhodes Trust. And he took over South Africa and was part of the Boer War, and he's the one that's credited with starting the uh, Boer War. And uh, Quite a uh, fellow if you read into his history. And he got to live to be pretty old, so he was probably more influential in one sense than Cecil Rhodes himself by being in control of his trusts, or being one of the members that was in control. Now Sidney and Beatrice Webb were also close with Lord Arthur Balfour as well. Famous theosophist Annie Bizant, that I mentioned earlier who took over for Blavatsky was a Fabian Society member who at one time dated George Bernard Shaw. But she actually ended up being a good friend and dating W.T. Stead who was Rhodes' right-hand man. He wrote Cecil Rhodes' Last Will and Testament. He was the newspaper editor, and the guy who uh, was, he's kind of credited with being the first sensationalist in newspapers. So they started their own kind of group called the Law and Liberty League, and they created a paper called The Link. And going on a little later, Lord Milner, the guy who I said a few minutes ago, Was kind of credited as being the second Cecil Rhodes, later gave speeches on the greatness of socialism. So you see these guys mixing it up with socialism, capitalism, and we're seeing that some of these guys were probably never really capitalist in the first place. Now, H.G. Wells explains this in a quote from 1920, He says big business is in no means antipathetic to communism. The larger big business grows, the more it approximates collectivism. It is the upper road of the few instead of the lower road of the masses to collectivism. That was from his book Russia in the Shadows, the chapter called The Envoy. Well, George Bernard Shaw actually had a much shorter quote that explains this. He said, Fabianism feeds on capitalism, but excretes communism. thought that was a pretty strong quote there. Another quote kind of having to do with this is, of course, the Fabian Keynes, the economist, he has a quote here that says, There is no subtler way, no sure means of overturning the existing basis of society than to debauch the currency. The process engages all the hidden forces of economic law on the side of destruction and does it in a manner which not one man in a million is able to diagnose. How about that? And not so oddly enough, the environmental cult, the Club of Rome, their 18th report titled The First Globalist Revolution, states, The market is ill-adapted to deal with long-term effects. And they're talking about the environment, of course, The system of market economy countries based on competition is motivated by self-interest and ultimately on greed. Now, how is this connected to the Fabians, you might ask? Well, in the introduction to the first global revolution in the Club of Rome, it just so happens to open with the same excerpt from the Rubaiyat by Omar Khayyam that the Fabians use for one of their main slogans. Remember the Fabian window. Ah, love, and thou with gait conspire to grasp this sorry scheme of things entire. Would not we shatter it to bits and then remold it nearer to the heart's desire? Now tell me that is a coincidence. And that was from Descent into Slavery, page 217. Now, interestingly enough, Julian Huxley was the founder of UNESCO in 1946. He published the book UNESCO, Its Purpose and Its Philosophy. He was also, of course, the brother of Aldous from Brave New World and the Doors of Perception and a famous eugenicist. It said in that book, The general philosophy of UNESCO should be a scientific world humanism. Global in extent, it can stress the transfer of full sovereignty from separate nations to a world political organization. Political unification in some sort of world government will be required to help the emergence of a single world culture. Now, Julian was not only a fan of eugenics, He was the president, one time, of the Eugenics Society. I'm just going to add this, it probably means nothing, but I saw this quote from Fabian Sidney Webb. It says, One and one make two, but if you bring one and one close together, they make eleven. And I just thought that was interesting because of 9-11, of course, and also that being the perfect number, according to Alistair Crowley. Maybe there's no connection whatsoever. George Bernard Shaw said, Socialism is the same as communism, only better English. And Leon Trotsky once said, The end may justify the means, as long as there is something that justifies the end. Karl Marx said this, and I think this is something to keep in mind, because I think that this This technique has been played out on both Democrats and Republicans over the years, and probably at the same time under different circumstances. It's called the One Enemy Concept. A particular social sphere must be identical with the notorious crime of society as a whole, in such wise that the emancipation of this sphere would appear to be the general self-emancipation, in order that one class should be the class of emancipation par excellence, another class must contrary be the class of manifest subjugation. Now think about that a little bit, and then think about the Hegelian dialect and some of these other techniques that are used on the people. I'm thinking about, of course, the Nazis when I see this Karl Marx quote. It almost sounds just like them. And we know that there are manufactured enemies that are used to scare the people and make the people pliable. And so we can consider that with the war on terror and other things, the war on drugs even. How about this war on the people, which is the Great Reset? I don't know. I think that is a pretty important quote that we can think about and we can kind of look back and see that that has happened in history quite a few times, and maybe there's some trickery going on there. Now let's look a little closer at the London School of Economics. We'll read a quote from Gary Allen here. The Fabian Society is not an independent force whose objectives just happen to coincide with those of top insiders. Indeed, from the earliest beginnings of the Fabian movement, the American establishment has provided close cooperation and support. In 1895, Fabian Society leaders Sidney and Beatrice Webb and George Bernard Shaw founded the London School of Economics and Political Science. The LSE acts as a transmission belt for Fabian theories of state economic dictatorship and plays a central role in the Fabian strategy to socialize and control the world. Within a few decades of its founding, the LSE was drawing substantial support from the international banking families in New York. For many years, The heaviest contributor to the LSE was the Rockefeller Foundation. Indeed, the London School of Economics became one of the world's most influential centers of socialistic indoctrination, thanks in large part to the Rockefeller money. The London School of Economics serves an exclusive international clientele. After graduating from Harvard, David Rockefeller would study economics at the LSE. John F. Kennedy studied there, as did his assistant secretary of labor, Patrick Moynihan, who was also a Fulbright Fellow. Moynihan would also serve on President Nixon's White House staff and on the National Board of the Directors of the Americans for Democratic Action. One of the most popular and prominent lecturers at the London School of Economics during the period of 1920 to 1950 was British Marxist Harold Lasky. Lasky was highly regarded in socialist circles even serving as an executive member of the Fabian Society. In January 1945, prior to leaving for Yalta, Franklin Roosevelt wrote Lasky, Our goal is, as you say, identical for the long-range objectives. Lord Chief Justice of England, Lord Hewitt, in his classic book, The New Despotism, he made the following charge. A mass of evidence establishes the fact that there is in existence a persistent and well-contrived system intending to produce and, in practice, producing a despotic power which at one and the same time places government departments beyond the sovereignty of Parliament and beyond the jurisdiction of the courts. Now remember Colonel Edward Mandel House, who was said to be the guy behind Woodrow Wilson and the socialist who wrote the book Philip Drew Administrator, kind of based on a world as wanted and described by Karl Marx. Now, Rose Martin says in Fabian Freeway, Colonel House formed a lasting friendship with journalist George Lansbury, a lifelong pillar of the Fabian Society, who once persuaded the American soap millionaire, Joseph Fells, a member of the London Fabian Society, thanks to the prodding of his wife Mary Fells, nee Rothschild, to lend 500 pounds sterling to underground Russian social democrats, including Lenin and Trotsky, when they were stranded in England. Leon Trotsky, in his book My Life, would also relate that a British financier gave him a large loan to be repaid after the Tsar was overthrown. That was in Dennis L. Cuddy's book, The Globalists. It also says in 1928, Walter Lippmann, member of the Fabian Society and the Intercollegiate Socialist Society and the Council on Foreign Relations, he's actually one of the founders of the Council on Foreign Relations. He wrote in The Political Scene, an essay on the victory of 1918, that World War I in April 1917 is dissolving into a stupendous revolution that could hopefully result in the federation of the world. And future Socialist Party president, candidate Norman Thomas, would write, American people will never knowingly adopt socialism, but under the name of liberalism, they will adopt every fragment of the socialist program until one day America will be a socialist nation without knowing it even happened. And just a little bit more trivia here for you. Among the North Atlantic Treaty nations, already joined in a military defense pact, British socialists promoted the cause of the Atlantic Union and continue to do so today. This high-flown scheme was merely an enlargement of the Federal Union, the scale model engineered at the outbreak of World War II by a key member of the Fabian International Bureau, R.W.G. McKay, aided by the Fabian-approved Rhodes Scholars, Clarence K. Strait, and Herbert Agar. Fifteen federal unions calls, among other things, for the government of the United States to reunite with Britain, while Atlantic Union marshals European support for the same plan. Both in its original and expanded forms, Federal Union has appropriated the secret dream of the 19th century empire builder Cecil Rhodes and remolded it along the lines more adapted to the schemes of the socialist internationals, such eminent personages of the international as the foreign minister Paul Henry Spock of Belgium have lent the luster of their names to the Atlantic Union. And we'll probably talk about the Atlantic Union and all the papers and world federalism and all that eventually on one of the episodes. I was looking at some of van der work, and he talks about the alliance between the Fabians and big money, There's even a picture he has on there with George Bernard Shaw at some kind of gala event with one of the Rothschilds, and uh, of course, it talks about the Webbs and their associations with different various millionaires and very wealthy people of the time. So it's pretty amazing to me that the Fabians were able to hobnob with these rich elitists, and, of course, they were pretty open about that being one of their goals is to infiltrate the public and private sectors. And that's very important to me because I believe that's what we are seeing now. I think we're seeing the fruits of what the Fabians did long ago, infiltrated into all these forms of government and the private industry. And we're looking at decades now, over 100 years, of the skull and bones Influenced, Fabian influenced education system. And we know that from our talks with Charles Savoy, that Columbia University was a haven for CFR and Pilgrim Society members, but also for the Frankfurt School, which should have been, again, the antithesis of the Rose era guys, the CFR guys, but it was not. And we see also that Oxford and Cambridge are huge hubs for both sides. And we see that higher ed is locked in with MI5, MI6, the CIA, and others. And so that is the kind of things we're up against. The most well-networked, well-organized cadre of different groups that has ever been in any civilization whatsoever. And the technological capabilities we have today makes it even easier for all these different groups to talk to one another, to plan, to figure out what they're going to do. And we're seeing that under the Great Reset right now. Again, I'm going to talk for a few minutes about the connection between the Fabians and money. And in Jason Horsley's book, The Vice of Kings, which I highly recommend you go out and get, it's a very interesting book because his family had been Fabian socialists for several decades. And he also talks a lot about the occult and Aleister Crowley and those influences on British elites and British government. And so I'm going to read right here from page 12, a little piece. It says, Moving past the more or less established history of Fabianism, I found a compelling and damning description of the Fabian plan as central to the whole New World Order millennia-long conspiracy, Big C, in an archived essay called Fabian Influence on Council's Developments in New Zealand in 2006. One premise of the information was that the Fabian Society was behind various labor movements in Britain and that it concealed elitist and even capitalist interests. This was something I could vouch for from direct experience, Having grown up in a wealthy socialist family, we were called Champagne Socialists, who were above all business people but also actively involved in local and I was discovering global politics. In seemingly reformist and new left movements such as the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, CND, all having sometimes obvious, sometimes less so, ties to the Fabian Society. According to another online source, the Fabian Society has 7,000 members, 80%, 5,600, of whom are members of the Labor Party, amounting to about 3% of the General Labor Party membership, about 190,000 in 2010. The Fabian percentages increases dramatically in the higher reaches of the Labor Party. George Bernard Shaw declared the aim of the Fabian educational reform as entailing the creation of a Minister for Education with control over the whole education system, from the elementary school to the university, and all over educational endowments. Sidney Webb, that's page 55 of his book. This allegedly led to the creation of a wide range of interconnected organizations, societies, and movements. In education, councils like the London County Council, universities, societies, and schools like the London School of Economics, Imperial College, and London University, in Culture, the New Age Movement, of course, Annie Besant was a founding Fabian, the Central School of Arts and Crafts, the Lead Arts Club, and the Fabian Arts Group, as well as the Stage Society. In Economics, the LSE again, the Royal Economic Society, the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, in Law, the Haldane Society, named after Fabian Society member Lord Haldane, also a Pilgrim Society member. In medicine, the Socialist Medical League. In religion, the labor, later Socialist Church Movement, the Christian Socialist Crusade, the Christian Socialist League, the Christian Socialist Movement, and so on. You get the picture. Shaw expressed a desire to make the Fabians the Jesuits of Socialism, while H.G. Wells, number four on the Fabian executive after Webb, Pison, Shaw, proposed to turn the whole society into a ruling order, similar to the Samurai. In his book, A Modern Utopia, that the Fabians consciously sought the company, collaboration, and support of the wealthy and powerful is evident from Fabian writings, such as Beatrice Webb's Our Partnership, which is abound in references to catching millionaires, wire-pulling, moving all the forces we have control over, while at the same time taking care to appear disinterested and claiming to be humble folk who nobody suspects of power. And that was by Beatrice Webb, Sidney Webb's wife. The late John Taylor Gatto has got a little bit different take on that. He says in his underground history of education, As the movement developed, Fabians became aristocratic friends of other social efficiency vanguards like Taylorism, or allies of the Methodist social gospel crowd of liberal Christian religionists, busy substituting works for faith in one of the most noteworthy religious reversals of all time. Especially they became friends and advisers of industrialists and financiers, travelers in the same direction. This cross-fertilization occurred naturally, not out of petty motives of profit, but because Fabian Light's evolution had progressed furthest among the international business and banking classes. Fabian practitioners developed Hegelian principles, which they co-taught alongside Morgan bankers and other important financial allies, over the first half of the 20th century. Finishing up here, Gatto sounds a lot like Anthony C. Sutton. He says, One sightful Hegelianism was that to push ideas efficiently, it was necessary first to co-opt the political left and political right. Adversarial politics, competition was a loser's game. By infiltrating all major media, by continual low-intensity propaganda, by massive changes in group orientations, accomplished through principles developed in the psychological warfare bureaus of the military, and with the ability, using government intelligence agents and press contacts, to induce a secession of crises, they accomplished that astonishing feat. Again, that was John Taylor Gatto. And quickly, in the book Hope of the Wicked by Ted Flynn, He says this about the Fabians and Edward Mandelhaus, who was the assistant to and the man behind the Wilson administration. And they thought, of course, that they were going to get the League of Nations passed. And he's talking about when they realized they were not going to get that done. He says, Colonel Edward Mandelhaus, Marxist socialist, was the focal point of the talks in Paris after the war. Historian Rose Martin says, Colonel House was only one man where a multitude was needed. He had set the pattern and outlined the goals for the future, and he still had a scheme or two in mind. In particular, he thought it necessary for the Fabians to develop a top-level Anglo-American planning group in the field of foreign relations, which could secretly influence policy on one hand and gradually educate public opinion on the other. To the ambitious Fabians, British and American, who had flocked to the Peace Conference as economists and junior officials, it soon became evident that a New World Order was not about to be produced at Paris. For them, Colonel House arranged a dinner meeting at the Hotel Majestic on May 19, 1919. Interesting date. Together with a select group of Fabian-certified Englishmen, notably historian Arnold Toynbee, R. H. Tawney, and John Maynard Keynes, all were equally disillusioned for various reasons by the consequences of the peace talks. They made a gentleman's agreement to set up an organization with branches in England and America and to facilitate the scientific study of international questions. And so, from their roundtable background, two potent and closely related opinion-making bodies were founded. The English branch is previously mentioned as the Royal Institute of International Affairs. The American branch, first known as the Institute of International Affairs, was reorganized in 1921 as the Council on Foreign Relations. It is through this front group called the Council on Foreign Relations and its influence over the media, tax exempt foundations, universities, and government agencies that the international financiers have been able to dominate the domestic and foreign policies of the United States ever since now Fabian Bertrand Russell said about Fabian H. G. Wells' book, The Open Conspiracy: Blueprints for a World Revolution. I do not know of anything with which I agree more entirely. Bertrand also writes to h. G. Wells. Lord Haldane would not forego the pleasure to be derived from the next war. Fabian Socialist Haldane, H.G. Wells, Lord Alfred Milner, and George Bernard Shaw, along with Sir Edward Gray, and you noticed several pilgrims in there, members of the Coefficients Club, founded in 1902 by Fabian Socialist leader Beatrice Webb. Gray had misled Germany into thinking Great Britain would not enter the First War if Germany did. Gray was very close to the Milner Group, and Haldane was a member of it, according to Professor Carol Quigley in the Anglo-American Establishment. Professor Quigley also will write in his book, The group feared that all culture and civilization would go down to destruction because of our inability to construct some kind of political unit larger than the national state. This was the fear that animated Cecil Rhodes. The Fabians were actually mentioned by Congressman Lewis McFadden, who was the chairman of the House Banking Committee. He placed in the congressional record what he called a secret document entitled Freedom in Planning, issued from the inner council of the members of the Political Economic Plan, or otherwise termed PEP. The Political Economic Plan Group is a branch of the Fabian Society. McFadden indicates that the secret document was authored by Israel Moses Seif. And McFadden remarks About three months after the passage of the National Recovery Act of the United States, when Israel Moses Seif was urged by members of his committee to show more activity, he said, Let us go slowly for a while and wait until we see how our plan carries out in America. Seif was referring to President Roosevelt's New Deal. Now, Nicholas Hager says in the book, The Syndicate, that the American version of PEP is the NPA, the National Planning Association, which was followed by the BAC, the Business Advisory Council. He says, PEP, the NPA, and the Business Advisory Council worked closely with the Council on Foreign Relations to promote the United States of Europe. And Frankfurter's Fabian policy of amending the US Constitution has tilted it towards socialism. Frankfurter became a close friend of Harold Lasky, a Marxist professor at the London School of Economics, and they frequently exchange ideas and visits. He also says, in addition to the Rockefellers funding the London School of Economics, Mrs. Ernest Elmhurst, the widow of JP Morgan partner Willard Strait, was one of the biggest founders. And he goes on to say, the Fabian Society's best-known publication is The Economist, but its tradition of Fabian essays in socialism, edited in 1899 by Shaw, has been continued in the new Fabian essays. And I'll leave in the show notes links to the Fabian essays, which are on the London School of Economics website. No, you know, I have thrown an absolute ton of quotes at you, but it was very important for me to convey what these men actually said and what the people who were a part of it actually said and what the people who investigated it have actually said through their research. Now, this is from Sidney Webb, one of the founders of the Fabians. He says, The problem of the unemployable is not created by the fixing of a national minimum wage law. The unemployable we've had with us always. With regard to certain sections of the population, this unemployment is not a mark of social disease. But of social health. I think we've heard that by Nancy Pelosi and company in the last few years. If we desire to reduce these unemployable to a minimum, it is necessary to pursue a twofold policy. We must arrange our social organization in such a way that the smallest possible amount of such degeneracy, whether physical or mental, is produced. These physical and moral weaklings and degenerates must somehow be maintained at the expense of other persons. They may be provided for from their own property or savings, by charity or from public funds, with or without being set to work in whatever ways are within their capacity. But of all ways of dealing with these unfortunate parasites, the most ruinous to the community is to allow them unrestrainedly to compete as wage earners for situations in the industrial organization. For this at once prevents competition from resulting in the selection of the most fit, and thus defeats its very object. That was from Industrial Democracy. And one last quote from the Fabians, and it goes along with the last. This is from George Bernard Shaw. Under socialism, you would not be allowed to be poor. You would be forcibly fed, clothed, lodged, taught, and employed, whether you liked it or not. If it were discovered that you had not the character in industry enough to be worth all this trouble, you might possibly be executed in a kindly manner. Now we get back to those death panels, eh? So, you see, the caring socialism that we hear about, well, its roots are something altogether different, and we should be concerned about that. But I'm going to leave you with something here from my own little mind. The real threat of communism and socialism wasn't the head-on war with the Reds. While the right looked straight ahead towards the Soviets, the Fabians were infiltrating every facet of both the public and private sectors. One in ten conservatives and libertarians couldn't even give more than a couple details about Fabian socialism, or who was and is one. The wool has been pulled over the people's eyes, and they were made to think capitalism, was the antithesis of communism, socialism, and collectivism, while industrialists and financiers, like the Rockefellers, were funding all those groups. We relied on stereotypes that were created by the media and educational books the elites had written. It was a slow and steady race. Not that there was never a threat by the Red Army, and not that McCarthy was wrong on all accounts, As the Venona papers have shown, he was correct that communist agents and sympathizers were alive and well, but the real threat came from every direction but the one we were looking in, and now we are seeing the results of this long-term strategy. After all, money makes the world go around, and communist and socialist countries have to have it to keep their governments and armies going, and the financiers are happy to loan it to them. And so I hope that this episode has been a blessing to you. And you might want to go back and listen to the first episode as well. The first episode on the Fabians a few weeks ago. But I appreciate you taking your time to listen. Thank you so much. Hope you got something out of this. Please, please, please share the show. Tell other people about it. And I look forward to bringing you more stuff soon. Working on the origins of education. I'm working on an episode about the Skull and Bone Society. And just all kinds of other things right now. And I'll be doing some videos soon. So thank you so much. Hope you're having a great weekend. Thank you to my patrons out there. I hope you guys are doing well. Thank you to Alternate Current Radio for carrying the show. Thank you to Fringe Radio Network for carrying the show. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See ya.